Today, you are going to get a front row seat to the memorable journey of how Australia won the Rugby World Cup in 1991 with Captain Nick Farr-Jones. Nick, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. Before we begin our conversation, let's take a look at today's trivia question. Who scored the opening try of the 1991 Rugby World Cup? Now, if you know the answer to the question, you can put it in the comment section down below, and we'll also find out if Nick knows the answer, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Nick, let's start in 1991, just before the Rugby World Cup. How confident were you of Australia's chances? Peter, I actually thought that we were the favourites. Um, we had had a very good victory over New Zealand in, in 91 in Sydney. And then very sadly, um, when we were about to win the Bledisloe Cup on the return match, there were two matches uh, that comprised the Bledisloe Cup in 91. So I think we won about 21 to 9, 21 to 10 in Sydney. And then we went over to Eden Park in Auckland to win the Bledisloe Cup. And we played miserably and we lost six points to three. And uh, my very reliable number 10, Michael Liner, missed about four or five shots at penalty that day. And I'll never forget the atmosphere in the room. We had a after-match dinner at, um, at the race course, at Ellerslie race course in, uh, in Auckland. And we have, after each test, we have what we call a happy hour. Well, I can assure you, Peter, it wasn't very happy. Um, but basically, we got together as a team, you know, to have a few beers. And I do recall just saying to the guys, never forget the feeling and how we feel now, having basically let New Zealand you know, keep the Bledisloe Cup. It was one all, but they retained it. Don't forget this feeling, bottle it, because I think there's a reasonable chance we might play these guys in a couple of months, which, of course, we did um, in in uh, in Ireland. And, um, you know, I partly think that, well, there's a lot of things that were responsible to our success, but I partly think that loss and the disappointment of that loss um, had us absolutely ready to go when we met them in the semi-final. But I, I definitely think we were the, the best team in, in that sort of year and probably preceding it. When we beat New Zealand in 1990 in Wellington, which ended, I think, about a 25-match winning streak for the Kiwis, uh, I really felt that we had their measure. And so I was very confident going over. But I knew it was going to be my last roll of the dice. You know, I was a part of the 87 World Cup, the inaugural World Cup. I started in 84. I was a lawyer and I didn't want to go on with rugby all. You know, it wasn't my livelihood. Um, so I knew this was probably going to be my last World Cup. And because of that, and because I thought we could and should win it, it, it did create a lot of pressure. Tell me about your leadership style. <laughs> Oh, look, I think it's difficult for someone to describe their style. I, I'd like to think that I led by example, um, you know, right the way through my captaincy. I, I grew up swimming twice a day uh, until I was three hours on a train going to secondary school and then swimming became middle distance running. So I always had a, a huge discipline for hard work and um, and that holds you in good stead when you're the captain of a of a rugby team because, you know, you're the fittest bloke in the team and so you can lead by example as far as, you know, training and, and your love of, of hard work. Um, I'd like to think I was very collaborative. I'd like to think that um, I got on well with the blokes. You, you obviously need respect, you know, to be a good captain. We, we had a lot of young guys come into the team um, around about 89, 90, 91, the likes of Eels, Mackenzie, Daly, Offerhand, Galway, Horan, Little, um, Eels. 
Um, yeah, so there are a lot of young guys that came into the team and I'd like to think that, you know, they looked up at us older blokes, the Poitavans, the Campeses, the Liners, myself, you know, with a lot of respect. And, um, you know, it was a great combination of, of experience and youth. And I often think that that makes for great teams. The Wallabies were in the same group as Wales, one of the co-hosts, as well as Western Samoa, who, as it turned out, were one of the top teams at that tournament, as well as Argentina. It actually looks like it was a group of death. Was that the case at the time? Look, uh, Wales were obviously going to be you know, reasonably formidable. West Samoa, I mean, as the Samoans said, just as we didn't play all of Samoa. <laughs> but that was my 50th test, and we played at Pontypool from memory, and it was a really miserable day. And... Um, and that just made for an arm wrestle. And, and those guys, when they hit, they, they, you stay hit. And um, it was a miserable day for me. I got injured in about the you know, 15th, 20th minute, um, got caught in the bottom of a mall, twisted my knee and ankle. I actually thought, Peter, that that was the end of my World Cup. Um, I came off the field and spoke to my wife on the phone and said, I think it's all over. And we had a magician of a physiotherapist, a guy called Greg Craig, and Craigie did a bit of shaking. He said, Nick, it's a second degree, you know, lateral or whatever ligament it was, strain. He said, if we start now, including icing it, you know, for when we get back and we start in the pool tomorrow, you know, to take the weight off it, he said, I think I can get you right for the quarterfinal. And we worked every day probably for 10 hours, you know, slowly picking things up, picking things up. You start to get on your, on, on, yeah. In the pool, then you start to walk, then you start to jog in a straight line, then you start figure eights, then you start to put a bit of impact into it. And he was right. He got me on the field for the quarterfinal. And after Western Samoa, as they were still known in those days, defeated Wales, one of the great upsets, certainly at that stage uh, in the history of the sport. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, look, Wales obviously weren't overly strong. I mean, they, they did drop off they you know they I think they had some selection dilemmas and what have you and I think from memory because they toured Australia earlier that year um, and had a significant scrap between two of the teams Cardiff and it might have been Neath and at the end of that tour and the end of the series at a dinner at Ballymore in Queen in Brisbane there was significant um, you know sort of issues between those two clubs within the team. So it was a pretty disruptive Welsh team. And, and Samoa on their day, they, they're, they're fantastic. So it was interesting. You mentioned that we had a good win against uh, Argentina. I, I would probably differ in my view of that game. We conceded three tries that whole World Cup and we conceded two against Argentina. So I can certainly say to you, mate, that my recollections of 31, 32 years ago was that we weren't too happy the way we performed against Argentina, but we did have a victory and, and that's critical in pool matches. You've mentioned that you were struggling with injuries. Did you get any opportunities to enjoy Wales as a country in terms of sights and sounds? Um, I think we enjoyed Ireland far more. Um, but look, you know, I, I love the Welsh people. I love the Welsh towns and, and I love Cardiff. Um, I loved all touring. I can tell you that, and particularly the United Kingdom and Ireland. Um, but to be honest, Peter, my absolute focus was just to get myself fit. And when I said we worked 10 hours a day, myself and the physio, we literally did, um, whether it was machines on the knee and ankle, um, whether it was you know just a training, whether it was resting. And so I can assure you I wasn't out sort of looking at the scenery and what have you. I, I did, in 91, my... my 
eldest daughter, who's now 32, um, she was born in July. And so Ange brought her over and, and any sort of spare time that I would have had, I would have been seeing my, my wife and my daughter. So I don't have any great recollections of, you know, the typical touring and what have you were totally focused. I was focused on getting myself fit and um, spending time with my wife and daughter. So I don't have any you know, real recollections, unlike a lot of other tours, um, you know, to Argentina or France or Italy, even New Zealand, um, you know, where you get great memories of going out and mixing with the local people and doing different activities. You know, the World Cup was all about looking after my wife and my daughter and, and getting myself fit. So that's sort of my recollection. Now, speaking of that quarterfinal against Ireland, it was a really, really tight match. 6-6 at halftime. Now, obviously, you're the captain. Bob Dwyer is the coach. In that sort of environment, who says what? Well, Peter, I got injured after 20 minutes in that game again. I re-injured the knee, and I thought this was it again. Um, Had I actually stayed on and the physio had come on, it was more of a jar. I probably would have been right to play on. But... um, I came off after 20 minutes thinking I've just redone it and let's get Peter Slattery on the field, my, my replacement scrum half. As it turned out, as I said, I was fine and I was 100% for the, for the semi-final and the final. But, you know, I wasn't there. But I can assure you, um, and from memory back then, the coach didn't come on. You've got to remember back in 91, we didn't go off the field. Um, you basically get in your huddle and, and the captain calls the shots. Um, and so I was in the grandstand and Michael Liner had taken over the captaincy. If I could take it towards the end of the match, one of the things that became the hallmark of our team was consistency. In, when I first took over the captaincy in 88, we were a very inconsistent team. We could be brilliant one day, but literally a week later, we could play miserably and hand the game to the opposition. I think particularly of the British Lions series. In 1989, when we won four tries to nil in Sydney in the first test, got bashed up two weeks later at Ballymore and lost, I think, by four or five points. And then in the final test, you know, led close to the you know, finish and made a stupid error um, as a team we did um, without singling anyone out. Um, but we lost that series. And so hugely inconsistent performance. Um, I think of the All Black series in 88, one great match at, at Ballymore, two miserable matches in Sydney. I think of the tour we went on at the end of 1990 to France. We beat them by about 30 points in Strasbourg. And then a week later, we're about to become the first Australian team to win a series on French soil and played miserably in, um, in Lille. And, um, and so huge inconsistency. And without going into detail, um, we spent six months trying to work that out and trying to become a consistent team. And, and again, I could, I could talk for hours on this, but effectively our problem was that we were too desperate to win and we wanted to get the scoreboard moving. Um, we were, were what we call a scoreboard-focused team and we had to change into a team that was not scoreboard-focused but what we call process-driven. And you might say, Nick, what is process in 80 minutes of rugby? It's, it's, you know, I'm a number nine. So it's everything that goes into my game. It's my passing, my kicking, my short side game, my defensive work, my organisation of the forwards around me in their defensive positions. It's my leadership, obviously, as a captain. It's my lateral vision because I get first use of possession. So nine times out of 10, I want to be making right decisions, right judgment under pressure, you know, in, in the nick of time. So it's everything that goes into my game as a number nine. It's everything I do in preparation, 
way beyond the 18 minutes. It's minimising the errors. And it's trusting the 14 guys around me to do exactly the same. And and did we get it right? Did we become a process-driven team overnight? No. It probably took us that six months. But the last 25 tests that I played, we won about 22 of them. We became an extremely consistent team. And I put it down to that. And so let me take you back to Lansdowne Road against against the Irish. Um, with four minutes to go, we fall behind. And I'm sitting in the stands thinking I'm going to be on a plane home tomorrow because um, we would have been on a plane home having not made the semi-final. And I decided then and there, Peter, that I would never coach because it was just too frustrating sitting in the stand not being able to do anything. But I'm going to take you back to your question about leadership. Um, With four minutes to go, I probably would have kicked short to try and get the ball back. Um, Had the Irish secured it, they probably could have tied up the game and, and we do go home the next day. Michael Liner actually said to the guys, he asked the ref how long to go. He said four minutes. He said, guys, we're going to kick long. They'll kick out. We'll secure the line-out ball. Do not lose it. And we ended up getting a scrum about in the middle of the field, 20 metres from the Irish line. And I probably would have said to Michael Liner, get back seven or eight metres. Let's put the drop kick over to, to go into extra time. Michael called this move that we'd practised it, you know, until our nose bled, and the rest is history. We we beat the Irish by one point in the final minute, and again I put it down to Liner was understanding what the process was. Get the process right, the scoreboard looks after itself. But you know, I still feel for the Irish. Um, they they put up a fantastic fight that day, and um, you know I wouldn't be talking to you now had we gone home. That's for sure. Do you really know your rugby? Do you always get your predictions right? Why not make some money then? Open an account right now with Tic Tac Bets and get up to 2,000 Rand and 20 spins with your first deposit. The link is appearing on your screen and I'll also put it in the description area. Please note that this is an affiliate link and I will make a little commission on it. Winners know when to stop. National Responsible Gambling Program. Toll-free helpline 0800-006-008. No persons under the age of 18 years are permitted to gamble. And what was your relationship like with Bob Dwyer? Excellent. Um, we argued a bit, you know, but I really think that leadership in sport and coach-captain relationship is like, um, it's like chief executive of a corporate and the chairman, the non-executive chairman. You, you don't agree on everything. You, you don't, the chairman's not there just to rubber stamp the chief executive's you know, decision-making vision, you know, the, the goals that he sets, the way he's going to execute to get those goals. The chairman is there to question and, and to, you know, and occasionally to debate, not always agree. Um, and that's exactly the relationship I had with Bob. We would often argue about things, um, not in front of the team, but we'd always get on the same page. And and to this day, and Bob's probably 82, 83 years of age, but we're still extremely good friends. We love the dialogue that we have about a whole bunch of things. Our wives get on brilliantly. Um, but I can assure you, when he was coach and I was captain, um, as the guys know, there was a lot of debate. And sometimes it got a little bit heated, but we always got on the same page. On to the semi-final against New Zealand, one of your great rivals, 16-6, a victory to the Wallabies. How comfortable were you in that match? It was probably one of the best matches I played in my time. Um, As I said said, um, 10, 15 minutes ago after that Auckland Eden Park loss, we were ready. Um, Typically, 
when you have a meeting before you jump on the bus to go to the game, you have backs and forwards meetings, then you get together as a team meeting. Um, Bob would say something. I would typically say something that might have a little bit to do with the game plan or it might be just a little bit of motivation. That day before we hopped on the bus to go to, uh, to, go to Lansdowne Road to play New Zealand, all I did was read a letter that I'd received from a good friend of mine who was disabled in a wheelchair, and he just wrote to me about how the team inspired him, you know, the spirit that he perceived we had. I just, the only thing I did in the team meeting was read that letter just so that the guys knew, you know, because we're a long way from home, the support that we had and the way people perceived our team and the spirit of that team. We were ready to go. It didn't need any other talk. Um, on the Thursday, we, the forwards hadn't played well against Ireland in the um, in the quarterfinal, and they decided that every afternoon for an hour they would go out to one of the local universities and, and just do some preparation on their own. And I think it was a Thursday afternoon before. It was a Sunday test against New Zealand because Michael Jones didn't play. It was the Sabbath. But the Thursday, the news came back that Poitman and Kearns had been in a bit of a, a punch-up at training, and I thought, this is fantastic. It's exactly what I want to hear. The boys are like cats on a hot tin roof. And I knew they were ready to go, and the Fords played unbelievably well against the New Zealanders. The Kiwis threw everything at us, but our defence was, was fantastic. We didn't concede a try in the semi-final or the final, um, which is pretty special. And uh, it was defence, but it was also the attack, the two tries that we scored, the first to Campisi, the second to Horan was superb tries. Um, Campisi was brilliant, as, as he often was in that, uh, in that 91 World Cup. But it was a fantastic match, both because of our offence and our defence. We were talking about becoming a process-driven team and a team that plays with structures. But I'm also thinking of a maverick like David Campisi. And who can forget that memorable flip pass in the semi-final? And that speaks to spontaneity. How exactly would you weigh those two up against one another? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because if you go back to the first try, Bob Dwyer... Um, it goes back to his Randwick days. And, and Randwick were fantastic, open-running team and, and they knew the whole concept of running straight, running straight to be able to draw defenders. And, and you put the ball through the hands, you would realign quickly, um, but it was all about running straight. And Bob Dwyer basically said to, to the team, if you don't run straight, you're not in my team. Because um, he understood the, the importance of it in, in drawing defenders and then creating overlaps. Campo... Um, was unique. He was on the right wing and we got quick ruck ball off a, off a line out in the middle of the field. Um, and my ear was really attuned to hearing from Campo. When he was screaming for it, I knew he wanted it. And so he came from the right wing running straight across field. And I hit him with a sort of a drifting pass and he ran as Bob Dwyer would hate straight across field for the corner and he went past about four All Blacks. Each guy thought as he went outside him, the next guy will get him, the next guy will get him, the next guy will get him, until I think it was Sean Fitzpatrick, you know, who was, who was for whatever reason out in the wing. And he went round Sean and scored in the try. So scored the try in the corner. So, so there he was, totally disobeying Bob Dwyer's, you know, instructions and, you know, do not run across field. And, um, you know, he was unique. Kemper was a guy who was never going to die wondering if he could beat the tackle. And, um, and in that... 
second try, the Horan try, he would turn guys inside out. And, and Timmy was, you know, he was only new in the team. He'd only been in the team for a couple of years. But he knew that if you're going to support David, one, you have to be in depth, and two, you have to be behind him because you weren't get sure if he was going to go left or right, and he went left, right, left. But Timmy was in depth. Had he been lateral, he wouldn't have been able to, to receive that pass when David put it over his shoulder. So Campisi was brilliant, but Horan was also brilliant in positioning himself. And then off to England for the final, London, Twickenham. I know that you didn't really get to experience much of Ireland and Wales because of the injuries. Did you get to see any of England? We were out in the south. We were really on the extremities of, of, um, of London, so we weren't really in town. We did go in. Castlemaine Forex, the, the beer brewer, was our really only sponsor back in the, in the amateur days. I think they did put something on from memory on the Wednesday where we went in and we, we caught up with a few Aussies, had a couple of beers. Um, the night before, um, so on the Friday night, I, I went into the city just to see my wife and daughter. I really wanted to see them before, you know, having a sleep and, and then getting ready. And so I went into town. But we were on the outskirts and it was really just a matter of, of preparing, getting ready and, and staying out of a lot of the, the festivities and what have you. But, you know, when you're playing a World Cup final, to beat a, a ground like Twickenham, um, to be playing England, you know, the stars really did align as far as the interest. And, you know, we were lucky enough in the amateur days, um, I think on the Monday after the the semi-finals, um, the French said, we've got 500 tickets. That's our allocation. We're not coming over because we're not a part of it. And they said, Nick, would you guys be interested in the tickets? And in those days, PD, you know, it was amateur. We got a, a small daily allowance, but you'd always have a team fund um, because you knew that some guys were coming away. They might have family back home. They might have mortgages. Um, some of the guys didn't get leave with pay. You know, their, their employees would give them pay when they're on a rugby tour. So it was sometimes important that we raised a team fund and um, it got distributed before you flew home. And we accepted all those tickets from the French and a few others. And you know that London, along with New York, is one of the big capital markets in the world. And so you've got all these financial guys, insurance, um, brokers. They're all trying to get to the match because England's playing at Twickenham. And those tickets, I think, averaged about 300 pounds. I mean, nowadays they'd be 2,000 pounds. But back in 91, 300 pounds was a lot of money and we had a lot of tickets to sell. So we ended up sort of in the good old days of signing travellers' checks and taking them home. I think some of the guys, you know, have got deep pockets. Those travellers' checks lasted about uh, five years. <laughs> so it was excellent to be playing England at Twickenham. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not consider becoming a patron? You can click on my Patreon link, I'll put it on the screen as well as in the description box, and there will be great benefits for members. Let's get back to the interview. Nick, I want to talk a little bit again about leadership. As the captain of the team, there's a little bit of a line between you and the rest of the team, isn't there? I'd like to know, how did you manage that divide between being the leader and not being too buddy-buddy with the rest of the team? Yeah, look, it, it's, I suppose, you know, you, 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 the, the captain, one of the benefits is you get your own room. And, you know, so that if you needed to pull someone in and have a chat, and, and every now and then you might have to do that. But... Um, yeah, look, it's, as I said at the beginning, it's important just to set the example. Um, I, to me, I, I'm a very social person, so I got on really well with all the guys and, and the guys knew that I enjoyed a beer and, and you know, I, they, they saw on the other side. We, we had a simple thing, you know, it's with the Wallabies and, and it, 
went for the decade that I played. You know, Alan Jones was my first coach and then, of course, Bob Dwyer. But we called it the on-off button. Um, and when you toured, the on-off button was important. So it was, it's important to turn the button on to off and enjoy the hospitality of your hosts and get out there. And I always, as captain, would accept just about every invitation we got to help charities and, and sometimes just the local bowls club, you know, in New Zealand might say, do you guys want to come and have a bowl? And sometimes I'd say to the guys, guys, I know you might not want to do this, but this is going to be a compulsory thing. And at the end of the day, the guys would love it. Um, but I was someone who loved accepting the invitations, particularly on tours. So, you know, switch the button on to off um, because it can get very intense when you've got to switch it back on to on. And you're preparing to strut your stuff in the 80 minutes. But, you know, the one rule that I had was don't do anything when the button's on off that's going to impact when you've got to switch it back on to on. You know, so don't do stuff. Don't go out at 4 o'clock in the morning. Go out and enjoy yourself. Enjoy being on tour. Enjoy the great occasions. But make sure you don't do anything that when you've got to flick it back on to on, um, that you're not ready to prepare and, you know, and, and play to your very best on the Wednesday or the Saturday. So that was pretty simple to me. I mean, obviously I had the my wife and my daughter there, so I would spend a lot of time with them. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's important, particularly in that final match, Peter, because you're effectively, you're going to the biggest event of your life. You don't get many chances of playing a World Cup final. And sometimes when you're going to the biggest event of your life, it's, it's hard to really switch on and to focus on it, and particularly some of the young guys. You, you Sometimes the, the way to treat that and to deal with that is just trying to be blasé and, and not focus on it. So there was a real balance of, of relaxing, in your preparation, but also realising that, you know, the spent arrow doesn't come back, that you've got one chance to do this and focusing on your role and and your role in the team and how you could maximise your performance was really critical. How were you feeling on the morning of the final? Yeah, I was I was relaxed. Um, I made sure that I, I anxious. My wife got into a, a section of the ground there where they said no female's ever been here before, but it was really important just you know, when the bus arrived that I just saw my wife again and, and she said later that you're, you know, as relaxed as I've ever seen you. Um, so I knew we'd done the work. I knew that we were prepared to go. Um, I didn't realise that we'd only win 37, 38% of possession. Um, and so, you know, when you pull on that gold jersey, you want to score four and five tries in a test match. You want to have interchange between forwards and backs, you know, multi-phase play. We got one lousy try from a, you know, a rolling ball. So we didn't win the game the, game the way we'd like to. Again, our defence was unbelievable. England threw everything at us and the defence was just superb. But here we are talking 32 years later and I don't think anyone remembers um, the way we won the game. They just remember that we did win it. And so a bit disappointing that it wasn't a typical wallaby game where you know eight years later john eels's team you know they did score the four and five tries and did have an excellent victory but we didn't but as i talk to you now i don't care okay nick what does it feel like when the referee blows the final whistle and you are a rugby world champion oh look i'm not sure i i sort of put it in that perspective peter but it was more just total relief because we had worked very hard for at least probably more than two years. It was putting the jigsaw together, which I, I really um, credit Bob Dwyer for picking some of those great young players. You know, when he picked Horan and Little, they weren't even playing for Queensland. Um, 
he picked Phil Kearns out of second grade, Randwick. Um, Daly, McKenzie, I had no idea who they were when we went across to play a one-off test against New Zealand. Um, John Eels, obviously, you know, became a, a great captain and a great leader. But at the time, I hardly knew him that he came into the team in that 91 year. And, and I raised those names because they became absolute household names of Australian rugby. It wasn't just that they played well in 91 and maybe a couple of years up later. You know, the Horns and the Littles were some of the greatest centres we've ever seen. The Kearns, Daly, McKenzie, arguably one of the best front rows we've ever had. The Willie off in Galways, who I didn't know, who was playing great rugby at Manly. He, he was one of our greatest ever flankers. And so putting that jigsaw together in 89, 90, 91, getting what I've just spoken to you about, the process and right, and it didn't happen overnight. As I said, it probably took us six months, but the work on that, all the physical work, um, that you go into into preparing a team and then, you know, the metal work, particularly as captain and the pressure of that. Um, so getting back to the end of the match, um, it was total relief. Um, I was absolutely knackered. I'd been crook on the Wednesday before the final. Um, and often the only times that I get sick are when the pressure really mounts. Um, you know, sometimes it happens at work, you know, and I rarely get sick, but it is often driven by pressure really increasing. So I was crook on the Wednesday. Um, I sort of figured I knew what it was. It wasn't any flu or anything, but it was just this this pressure. So it was real relief. And you've got to remember too, Peter, the beginning of the match was totally different. You know, normally you get the knock on the door of the changing rooms. You go out there, you build out your national anthem, you might face a harker. But within four or five minutes, you're into the game. That final against England at Twickenham, we were told there's going to be 18 minutes between the knock on the door of the changing room and kickoff. And why would that be? Because I had to introduce the Queen to my team. And then Will Carling had to introduce the Queen to his team. And then, of course, you have, you know, the, the anthems. And so it was a really different build-up. I mean, the, the, the forwards weren't banging heads, you know, and smoke coming out of their ears in the changing room. The arousal level had to be kept down because you didn't want to leave it in the changing room. You know, you had 18 minutes you know, going out there um, before kickoff. And so, again, that creates the pressure. That creates a different atmosphere that you've got to deal with. And, uh, you know, just getting back to it, it was absolutely total relief. And, you know, I mentioned being crook on the Wednesday. I had to leave the after-match dinner. There was probably a 1,000 people. I had to leave it at about 8.30 because I was crook again. Just the pressure and the and the relief. All of a sudden, I ducked off to the bathroom, um, and I wasn't well. I can assure you of that. And I had to go up to Michael Liner and said, Michael, um, who'd been sort of drinking way too much, I said, mate, I'm going back to the hotel. I've got to get out of here. I've been really crook, and you know both ends. I said, you're going to have to do the speech tonight. And he said, no, no, I can't do that. I said, well, mate, I'm out of here. I'm gone. Um, so again, uh, I was the only sober guy the next day on the on the Sunday. It's interesting to me that I've asked that question of quite a few Rugby World Cup winners, and I would say 90% of the time the answer is relief rather than joy or ecstasy. But as the captain of the team, you do get a second moment in that regard, in that you go up and receive the Rugby World Cup trophy. In this case, it was from Queen Elizabeth II. Talk to me about the feeling of lifting the trophy. Yeah, it was looking unbelievably uh, you know, special at the, the, the moment. And, and just to be able to then hand it on to Michael Liner, my vice captain, and hand it on to the guys and 
take it down into the changing room at Twickenham, Twickenham, which are you know really traditional, and you know sit in the big enamel bath and you know fill it with beer and drink out of it. It was it was great. Um, I had to stay on on the Monday. The team went back the day after. Um, I had to stay on for there was you know a big lunch and sort of awards and and as captain I stayed on and so I flew back with my wife and my daughter um, a couple of days after the team but they took the trophy on the on the seven four seven home and they filled it with champagne and took it right around the place and and everyone got to drink from it and, and yeah we got back Peter here in Sydney. Um, George Street is one of our main CBD streets and it goes basically from down the rocks or Circular Quay for about four kilometres and halfway up there you get to Town Hall. And after that victory, um, the Lord Mayor of Sydney decided to put on a ticker tape parade for the team and I tried to get it called off because I seriously thought, you know, three or 400 people might turn up in that two-kilometre stretch. They reckon about 130,000 people turned up that day and it was just unbelievable to get home and to see the support that we had. And the ratings at one and two in the morning, you know, for the team were just, or the matches were just phenomenal. And to me, playing amateur rugby and to come home to that and to see the celebration and the joy and the pleasure that our team um, had given Australian rugby fans and, and not just rugby fans. I mean, all you have to do is throw green and gold on someone's back, put them in a truly international competition and Aussies love sport. And so it was, that was the thing that to this day still amazed me, the level of support that we had. And you've got to go back and, you know, remember that this was amateur rugby and, um, you know, we had to have a day job, which I loved. I, I love the fact that I was one of the last amateurs um, for many reasons. But, you know, when I'm, Think back 32 years ago, they're the special things. And, and people still remember, you know, the great escape against Ireland and, you know, the Campisi brilliance against, against New Zealand and then the relief of hanging on by our, the, you know, the, the threads to, to beat the English and as they threw everything at us. And, you know, it's, it's special and, and no one can take it away from you. Um, very, very privileged to be in that you know, elite club of, of being in the right place at the right time to captain a World Cup winning team. Okay, Nick, let's finish off with the trivia question. Who scored the opening try of the 1991 Rugby World Cup? Do you know the answer, Nick? I'm pretty sure, and this is a man that I admire greatly for many, many reasons, but it was Michael Jones. And that is exactly right. Well done. Congratulations. Michael Jones is indeed the correct answer. So as I said, we played the All Blacks on a Sunday. And uh, I share a Christian faith with Michael and we, we're great friends and, and what have you. And, and I was just in, in awe that he sacrificed and you know, he just had that policy of not playing on the Sabbath. I remember, I remember he came up to me after the match and, um, and he said, Nick, you wouldn't believe how many emails I got from New Zealand. Not emails, sorry, faxes, as you did back then. He said, people playing, look, it might be Sunday over there in Dublin, um, but back here in New Zealand, it's a Monday. Play, you bugger, play. <laughs> but, of course, he didn't, and um, he was an amazing player. And I, Can I just say that our tactics against the, against the All Blacks were often about getting Michael in deep, dark places, making tackles, getting at the bottom of rucks, because if he played well and was in Liner's face, Horan's face, Little's face, the way he defended, then we'd lost the game. 
if he wasn't seen because we were able to execute on our strategy of, of getting him in deep, dark places, we had a very good chance of winning. But to have your tactics based around one player like that just shows you how special a player he was. Mick, let me say, it was lovely having you on Front Row Rugby today. An absolute pleasure. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future. All the best, mate, and good luck with the family and the second one coming along.